Uh, hey there, shiny, happy people. Welcome to Record Search and Rescue. I'm Maddie, and I'm here with the lovely Jen. And today we are talking about some toy companies and their intergenerational history, their mission, and pedagogy. Pedagogy, I always say that wrong. <laughs> it's a teacher term, sorry. Pedagogy. Um, pedagogy. History has been recorded over time by the corporation and their big fans. So. The idea for this episode came after I watched a short documentary called The Lego House. It is actually available on Netflix. It's about 44 minutes long. So if you want to check it out, don't! Because I want you to listen to my bonus episode first, y'all! Okay, sorry about that. Um, Yeah, sometimes, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you'll hear about that in the bonus episode. Anyways, um, I will link to the um the documentary on the rsr facebook page oh now i gotta clear my voice because i changed the whole tone <laughs> oh god no, i sound no. like clayton from good morning from hell <laughs> okay. so i will link to that on the rsr facebook page for those who are interested watching it so personally as a child imaginative play and building systems were a frequent escape from my brother and i our mother frequently shared games that she played or taught us new card games as we matured. So we could play PG versions of adult drinking games or, you know, just keep up with Uno or Skipbo. Um, this also, also, this episode kind of turned into a longer one. So we are going to post a Lego bonus exclusive episode after featuring only Lego content. We will be recording that early next week and it should be posted shortly sometime after all right guys so get pumped for that it's gonna be sick um it's gonna be like concentrated lego jams okay so over time people invented a lot of different entertainment sources they want to spend their time and sometimes their money most of the time their money and their time uh, so we're just going to jump right into it and let the games begin. And we're going to give you just a little bit of a jingle to get you all revved up thinking about toys. Okay, so today I'm going to start you off with what was always in the cards. And of course I'm talking about playing cards. Um, I played cards a lot when I was younger. Um, I played with some different decks because my family plays Tarok, which is like a French gambling game that Hungarians totally jammed with, but not all of them, because when I went to Hungary, they were like, what the hell are you talking about? But my family <laughs> does it. Um, and they have all these like little phrases, the um, like, which is like, oh, you save the best for last, stuff like that. Anyways, there's they, they have like the regular cards, but there's some different cards and you have to like, figure it all out. Sounds like a version of Uno. It, it's sort of like Bridge, I think. Oh. <laughs> uh, anyways, today I'm just going to get into the basics, which is just regular playing cards, or maybe you'd be more familiar with a bicycle deck. Love that iconic bicycle deck. Ace to King, four suits, all that jazz. So here's a little bit of scholar. There's a little bit of scholarly debate about where playing cards originated. Clear evidence places them in Europe in the 13 and 1400s, um, but the question of how they got there is still not answered for sure. Uh, the most prevalent theory is that they started off in the East, as so many great things did, 
and so many things on paper did. So um, it would be an interesting link. Uh, things on paper don't really last that well, so you can see why it's like difficult to hang on to the record of it. Um, so there have been links to cards earlier than the 12th century in Egypt and India and China. There are games that involve playing cards and tiles. So someone like something like a mahjong link. And Mahjong on the computer is different than Mahjong in like real life. Because I lived, my old roommates would play Mahjong and like, like uh, my friend Aiko, who I lived with, she was like going to teach us how to play it. And I think she tried to teach us one night, but I was too drunk. So who knew? Uh, that sounds like a post-grad experience. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so these games come back to around... Uh, 1000 AD. Paper, again, doesn't really hold up that well over time. So you can imagine uh, this has introduced a bit of difficulty in knowing, like, the record and, like, no one writes anything down back in the day. It was, like, a big thing in my education at University of Toronto. But anyways, so there was a monk in Switzerland. His name is Johannes. He mentioned playing cards in 1377. And in, in, uh, he talked about some different card games that you could play. Um, and this was in a written manuscript. Uh, in the 1400s came the first decks of cards and they were oft played with some dice, which sounds, it just like puts me in like a period drama and they're like gambling away their family fortune and they're all drunk. So it really does. Yeah. Feeling like Tolstoy. Your dice are loaded. Yeah. It's just like, wow. Um, so in the 1400s came the first decks of cards. They were, um, yeah, so they were played with dice, uh, and they were playing cards of the court. And that uh, in that century, they often had mounted kings, seated queens, and a knave, which is a jack. Um, and these first playing cards, uh, they were hand-painted, and they were very luxurious, um, luxury items. So I've posted on the Facebook page to include some woodblock print playing cards that are held by the Victorian Albert Museum, and they're pretty cute. So let me tell you, check, check those out. Uh, Jen and I both completed the master's program at Ryerson about photographic preservation, collections management, and a big part of this history, uh, that we, the history that we started in the program has to do with prints. Uh, printing was kind of a precursor to photography, but didn't like they existed simultaneously as well. Uh, like it wasn't just like photos came, prints were done. <laughs> uh, but printing in the 1400s consisted of a lot of wood block printing. So wood block printing is usually a relief print, which means the image or text is raised off of the the raised bit that you stamp. Uh, the printers kind of dip it in the paint or the colors or uh, they paint it like in, in the case of multicolored images and stamp it onto the support or roll it to put pressure on. So which is the case uh, if the play, uh, which is in the case of playing cards, usually they roll it onto paper. So woodblock prints are super awesome uh, to view online. There's a ton of cool collections that have to do with playing cards with many other images and text. So give it a Google, start your journey. It's a fun one. So, okay, <laughs> moving on to the Germans. Um, wanted you, they wanted to introduce their own suits and have dominance over Italian suits that were in the court, these courtly playing cards. Uh, and they were reflective of their interests, which included hearts for love, acorns for leaves, leaves and acorns. And they had Obermann and Ubermann, which is sort of over and under 
someone's sort of like a footman and a horseman. They basically made a 48-card deck. Uh, the two was high in these ones, so I thought that was really weird. I guess the ace it's just not there, maybe? I don't know. I hate it when I'm playing games on my phone, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to play my ace. I'm going to win this round. And they're like, uh-uh, motherfucker, <laughs> the two's high. And I'm like, since when? I know. It's That's just- bullshit. Apparently, since the Germans, the fucking Germans always want to be dominating, man. A lot of the dominant, like, a lot of the people who were in charge in other countries, like, end up just being German, too. Like, Queen Victoria, she's hella German. Catherine the Great, she is hella German. Like, well, I'm hella German, but. <laughs> I think I'm a little German on the Hungarian side, but I'm not sure. My mama! As my mama said, I got it from my mama. I look exactly. That might be a copyright issue. I hope not. Eh. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Um, okay, where was I? So we can see some of the suits that like we're used to coming out. So like you can see the spades, sort of looks like a leaf and a heart and a club, looking a bit like an acorn and a bit like a clover leaf. And we have the Uber and Ober, maybe like yeah, the footman, the horseman, that's in the tarot deck as well. It's why I connected it. it may not be the case. I don't know, maybe Jokers. Jo- oh, the Joker comes later. You'll see. Ooh. <laughs> So all of these familiar icons were developed in France more fully, like the suits that we know um, in the 15th century. So they had some famous names uh, on their court cards. So we have King David from the Bible in the spades suit. So he was the king of spades. Uh, Charlemagne was the king of hearts. Um, And I've actually, I went to Aachen um, before Corona and we went to sort of like uh, it had a they had like a, a showing of all of Charlemagne's stuff and it has like this bust of Charlemagne that has a skull in it. It's wild. Um, it's real skull. Yeah, but it's like inside the casing. They have like a bunch of different stuff. Like they have like his femur in like a box. It was like a aquarium. Oh, uh, oh wait, so did they have like an incomplete skeleton? You know what? Did they have like an incomplete skeleton and then like. They kind of made it look like a complete figurine of him? No, it's like they had his whole skeleton, I'm pretty sure. But um, they ha- like they, they put parts of people's bodies into, like, religious reliquaries. Like, they're like these casings um, because he was, like, the first Holy Roman Emperor and and stuff like that. And they, they wanted to have, like, a, a part of him. Um, and so they keep whatever, like his bones. I don't know why. Well, that makes sense. You know, like with the, you know, with, you know, like, uh, with the decapitation yeah. of, you know, the King Louis and stuff. Ooh, crazy picture. Like, you know, everyone kind of wanting to go get some of the blood. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's sort of like, yeah, like Jesus and having like, a piece of cross. Yeah. Having a piece of, Yeah. Okay, so very interesting. Sort of similar to that. Um, yeah, so, anyways. <laughs> so we had Charlemagne for hearts. Uh, Julius Caesar uh, was the king of diamonds. Lancelot was the king of clubs. Sometimes they have Hector, my favorite, of Troy for diamonds. Hector is my dog's name. I named my dog after uh, the prince of Troy, and he's back in Canada. And I get a picture of him sent to me every day. <laughs> um, so, anyways, there were these 
historical and mythological characters being represented in the prints on the cards in France. Uh, there were nine different regions of France at the time in the 1500s. Uh, and in the 15th century, so 1600s, sorry about that. Um, and then the different regions had different designs. So they're all trying to make them their own. Uh, I think it's really interesting that they chose Lancelot instead of Arthur. People like, I feel like everybody likes Lancelot better. Arthur didn't do that much, did he? No, he, he honestly really didn't. But like historically speaking, it's really interesting because like Arthur kind of like it all kind of dates back to like Troy, yeah. right? So it's really like, you know, but like, um, you know, like through literature and that kind of stuff and Arthurian legend, like it's obvious that Lancelot is a bit more of um, a conflict, a com- like a man that battles his own conflict. Yeah. He's right? It's really, he's really interesting. Yeah. Really interesting character. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, I don't know why they didn't sort of do Arthur as they can. Lancelot is like, you know, horseman or something. I don't know. But Lancelot, obviously, he gets the girl, too, so. Well, unofficially, but, you know. Unofficially gets the girl, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Gets on the side. Um, but, yeah, no. And he was played by John Cleese, who, you know. Mm. You know yeah, he- True. There, um, there's speaking like, you know, this episode is, is a sad Netflix plug, but there's a new show on Netflix called Cursed, which is done in part by Frank Miller, who is like the creative guy behind the Sin City franchise. Nice, nice, nice. Yes. My mother and I just finished binge watching it maybe two weeks ago. It blew our minds. Blew our minds. The whole, it's about, um, the whole series is, like, it's, like, a precursor to the Arthurian legend that we kind of all know. It gives us a really good background of all the characters before they even meet each other, and we even know who they are in Arthurian legend. Um, but it mostly focuses, the prime character is on the Lady of the Lake before she becomes the Lady of the Lake, Nimue. It's and she um she's given the sword a sword, sword yeah. given a task it's gonna be a bigger task than she really expected and it was amazing nice so if you're into the Arthurian legend stuff I seriously recommend checking it out it's so much better than the Merlin show because they ruined the ending to that show like mm-hmm. honestly I'm still mad about it and I watched it ten years ago nice. don't even bring it up sister loves Merlin. I can't. I don't know how she feels about the ending. I haven't watched it. But. Oh my god, it's horrid. Okay, <laughs> spoilers. We don't want to spoil people because <laughs> I don't want to know. I'm. I'm just like, <laughs> if it's gonna be a bad ending, like I've had enough of bad endings. It is. Parents ruined my life. Um. But yeah. you know, BBC, right? They're not afraid to end things. They're not afraid to end things. That's so true. Um. Okie dokie. So. Oh my god, I'm such an old lady. Uh, moving on to Belgium, they exported a bunch of cards to England, and that's where the suits that like had been established in France got called the names that we call them today. So we're starting. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> we start in Germany. It goes to France. It gets finally kind of like sealed the deal in England. 
Um, and you know how the English like to like call things, but they call them and decide what everything is called, how they do. Uh, but the designs on the cards that the English used were largely influenced by the city Rouen, which I believe was in Belgium at the time, but now nestles itself in Normandy in France. So now eventually the playing cards craze was present in the United States, eventually got its way across the pond. And this is where we see the addition of that fickle card, the Joker. Hmm. Uh, so it's used in a variation of poker uh, developed in 1875. And this car- card was wild. Jokers are usually like, I don't know, usually we're a pain in the ass. In Tarot, the Joker is one of the like three cards you can bet with. And nothing can beat the Joker. <laughs> like the person with the 21 is like afraid of the Joker at all times. Um, so yeah, the Joker is like really useful in that one. But usually in other games, I'm just like, oh, get out of here. So uh, I'm gonna transition from cards to video games. And one company that makes that, tra- that transition actually fairly smooth is Nintendo. And I'm gonna leave you hanging just for a moment because we're gonna have a little jingle break. So I feel like I should play some Nintendo music. Maybe I don't want to get dragged for copyright. Maybe I'll find some <laughs> that's like copyright free. Some knockoff Nintendo. Um, so what I do want to do is recommend that all of you look up the video artist Maya Ben David, and I'm gonna link this video to the Facebook page. But the video is called Insert Coin, and it's basically like landscapes and moments of music between the scenes in Nintendo games. And honestly, you guys, it's I've been listening to this and watching it for years. It's really relaxing. Uh, Maya Ben David is one of the artists in the V-Tape video collection in Toronto. And uh, I worked there one, one fine summer. And they are an amazing collection of video art. I would highly recommend you all check them out. Their space is popping and their research center is one that I helped set up and it's also like, very comfortable. <laughs> so self-centeredness aside, uh, Nintendo started as a company that produced handmade Hanafuda playing cards. And this is where the link is. So Hanafuda playing cards are Japanese playing cards and the name itself translates to flower cards. So now playing cards were introduced into Japanese culture in the 16th century by the Portuguese. The Portuguese deck had 48 cards like the German one I mentioned earlier. They also had four suits and it had 12 ranks. The first Japanese made decks were in the Tensho uh, period, which I'm probably saying wrong, I really apologize. But in the next century, they were banned by the Tokugawa shogunate. In the years before 1816, Hanafuda or Hana Awase appeared as a banned gambling game. Um, and this was only in the Meiji uh, period of time that playing cards became tolerated by the authorities in Japan. So again, we have cards being used to gamble. People want to waste their time and eventually their money. So (laughs) that's what's up with all of these. Nintendo was founded by Fusajiro Yamauchi. Jesus Christ, I'm so bad. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Uh, so he wanted to produce and sell handcrafted Hanafuda cards. They do still make these cards, but you can only buy them as Japanese imports. 
1949, the company had existed for decades under the name Marufuku Co. and Fujisajiro, his grandson Hiroshi, renamed the company Nintendo Karuda. And in 1951, they were the first company in Japan to produce plastic playing cards. And that plastic really, as you know, you've heard, plastic lasts forever. Um, in the, in the oceans everywhere it's it's a bad thing but it's a good thing in terms of like recording stuff or keeping things lasting a long time yeah i pulled the plastic off gases and starts to smell yeah. Yeah, it starts to smell like a beach ball <laughs> um so in 59 1959 he met with disney and they branched out from uh, the rather limited playing card field in the United States at the time to make the cards tied to popular Disney characters and also selling books to instruct on different card games. Um, it was pretty successful, selling 600,000 decks uh, in or more in a single year. Uh, so Nintendo was taken to a more international company at this point. The toy industry in Japan was popping in the mid to late 60s, and Nintendo was, like, having trouble keeping up. In 1966, Hiroshi was in the factory, just checking this out, saw this extending maintenance arm by Gunpei Yokoi, who was hired as a maintenance engineer the year before. So he made this arm just for fun, for his own amusement. And you could have colored Hiroshi impressed because he insisted that Yokoi make it into a proper product for the Christmas production series that was coming up. So it was known as the Ultra Hand, Ultra Hand. And it was a smash hit and one of Nintendo's first real toy successes. So Yokoi had, he had the background to like make it work in the electrical toy game. The toys that he was making were much more innovative and less traditional than the other toys on the market uh, because he had this engineering background. And he made some of the, like some of the ones that he sort of started off with, he made the 10 billion barrel puzzle. You can see it in a Zelda video game as like a, an Easter egg or something. It's like a barrel and you kind of line up the colors and stuff. And um, he also made this love tester game for young, for young men and women, not for young bears and ducks. This just makes me think of the Simpsons episode with the love mad at grandpa and how, how bad. It, it makes me think of like the Bob's Burgers episode where he yeah. wants to get Linda like the thing, right? Yeah, and he wants to get Linda the thing. And then it's like, oh, wait, that wasn't with you. It was like Brad. That was with a girl that I hated. It's so funny. I love it. I love Linda. She's everything. I um, love Linda too. My mom hates Linda. She's obviously like super annoying, but I love her. <laughs> she's great. Yeah, I love how she spontaneously burst into song. It's yeah. very akin to my spirit. I guess. I guess. Um, <laughs> no, I like. I think Louise is very akin to my spirit. I feel like the, the slow plotting. <laughs> I feel that. I'm not very strong though. Something tells me she's stronger than me. But anyways, she's also a cartoon character and therefore cannot fight me. So that's good. Um, <laughs> additionally, to make the Ultra Hand, like, give the Ultra Hand some, some company, uh, there was the Ultra Machine, which shot balls into the air to be hit by a bat or a racket. So like the automatic, you know, automatic baseball or tennis ball shooting the jiggy. And there was an ultra scope, which was a kind of periscope. 
um, the first gaming console, came in the Magnavox Odyssey, and it was released in 1972. This console came with dice, a light gun, but that was sold separately, so I guess it didn't come with that. And uh, it had regular consoles. Uh, it had no color and no sound, and was basically white on black, but it was pretty cool, because like there had never been a game console before. So later games like Wild Gunman in 1984 were some of the following shooter games that Nintendo produced with Yokoi, creating the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, Zapper. Those who have seen Back to the Future trilogy will be aware of what Wild Gunman is. Proceed. I have only seen Back to the Future 2 and the Back to the Future 1, but in French. On, like, a day off. It's the video game that he's really good at playing okay. at in okay. all three. And then in the in the, the last one, uh, he goes to the fair, like, because it's back in Wild West times in the fair. And there's no video games in the fair. And so he's, like, so he goes up to this, like, little fair. And they're, like, hey, boy, you want to play a game? You got to shoot all the ducks. And he's like, yeah, there's something like this back where I came from. And he wins it. Like, he just clears the board. And Buddy's like, you must be really good at this. (laughs) Amazing. I'll have to watch it. It's really good. Excellent. Uh, Okay, so in 1981, Donkey Kong was released. Uh, And it was released in arcade format by the Nintendo Video Game Division of the company. So this area of the company was, of course, headed off by Yokoi and DK, which was really initially pioneered by someone named Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, It was a huge success. Um, So Yokoi and Shigeru worked together, making a great monkey-based video game. Um, And the years following Nintendo was set, uh, on developing the handheld devices. They had been competing with Atari, but the video game crash, the video game crash of 1983 took out their com- competitors and much of the other American video game companies with them. Um, so Nintendo had released Game Watch in 1980 and 1990, like between the years of 1980 and 1991. And in 1989, the Game Boy was released. And Tetris was the game that accompanied that first release, but Super Mario Land and Super Mario Bros. 3 was released the next year. So from these consoles and handhelds came the Super NES, Nintendo 64, uh, which featured 64-bit color, uh, the Game Boy Advance, and the GameCube. More recently, we've seen sensors involved in gaming, like video gaming, especially in Nintendo products like the Wii, the DS, the Wii U, the 3DS, and the most recent and my personal favorite, the Nintendo Switch, which I have been playing Pokemon on for the last little bit. It's been sweet. Um, I have a really cool Chansey right now. It's like leveled up. I also, we finally caught a Kangaskhan, and then, so you can ride the Kangaskhan around in Pokemon, and the, your Pikachu goes in the pocket, and I call it a Pika pocket. It's amazing. Ah! <laughs> so, um, if you're a big fan of Switch, you should download Animal Crossing or play get Animal Crossing for it because in Animal Crossing there is the uh you have you can have a museum in Animal Crossing and 
museum and archival and art gallery workers love it so much because it's so accurate. Oh, wow. To, like, standards and procedures. And so, like, there's just, like, fully loaded, like, the Louvre has, like, a thing, on you know, on, like, Animal Crossing. And it's like, what? It's amazing. I have Stardew Valley, and that's the one I committed to. My horse in Stardew Valley is named Brago, uh, after like uh, Aragorn's horse in Lord of the Rings. And uh, and my dog looks like Hector, and oh, yeah. he is named Hector, so it's a my cartoon Hector. He's really cute too. Paul has a cat named Smithers, because that's my ideal cat name. <laughs> I like it. Where was it? It's hard to believe. The Mario Bros. and company all originated from paper playing cards um, that made their way to Japan from Europe. But Nintendo has maintained their roots, as I said. They still make Hanafuda cards, uh, but these ones may feature popular game characters, such as Mario and Zelda and Link, Kirby, all them bad bitches. So we're going to take a sweet little jingle break and then... Jen is going to go on about Hasbro. Okay. Another iconic toy company that many of our parents pumped cash into was Hasbro. Originally founded in 1923 by the Hassenfeld brothers in Providence, Rhode Island, Hasbro is the creator of such toys such as G.I. Joe, Mr. Potato Head, and the Transformers. After landing in the U.S. from Poland, Henry, Halal, and Herman started selling clothing scraps and leftovers. Um, By the 1920s, the brothers, along with eight other family members as the rest of the staff, were designing hat liners and pencil case covers. In 1926, the company was incorporated under the Hassenfeld Brothers, Inc. name. I kind of believe this may have been the beginning of the end for the brothers' relationship specifically, as they kind of started to drift away from each other here. Hillel moved on to other textile opportunities, while Henry controlled the corporation, some might say under a mighty and very clever fit. Henry was a smart businessman. Even during the Great Depression, his sales did not drop. In fact, Henry employed 150 people in 1929 and added 50 more in 1930, generating $500,000 in annual sales from pencil boxes and zippered pencil cases with school supplies alone. I'm sure. You should be. After a brief conflict with their pencil supplier, Henry Hassenfeld decided to make his own pencils, cutting out the middleman entirely. The Hassenfeld Brothers Inc. began manufacturing pencils in 1935, which provided a steady revenue stream for the next 45 years while they experimented with their namesake. Among the first toy sets the Hassenfeld Brothers created were medical kits for junior nurses and doctors um, and modeling clients. So, two separate things. (laughs) Um, During World War II, Henry's younger son, Merrill, responded to a customer's suggestion to design a junior air raid warn kit, complete with flashlights and toy gas masks. Hassenfeld was not the only company to jump on this bandwagon, as Disney also splashed Mickey Mouse all over child gas masks, 
Some even had the trademark Mickey ears. By 1942, the company had transitioned to primarily manufacturing toys. When Brother Halal passed away in 1943, Henry became the CEO, installing his son Merrill as president. At this time, Henry and Merrill made the decision to move into plastic toy manufacturing. Unfortunately, due to the war effort, a shortage of workers and the expenses from purchasing new machinery led to a significant reduction of the workforce to only 75 people. It was at this time in 1952 that Hassenfeld Brothers, Inc. introduced a classic toy still used by children today, Mr. Potato Head. Yes. Mr. Potato Head is the first toy to be advertised on television. In 1954, Hassenfeld landed a huge deal as the official licensed manufacturer for Disney character toys. By 1960, Hassenfeld Brothers' revenues had hit $12 million already, making them the largest private toy company in the country. In 1960, Henry Hassenfeld died, leaving his son Merrill in charge of the toy division, while Merrill's uncle Harold continued to run the pencil division. Unfortunately, this was a turbulent time for Hasbro, and internal politics created issues between family members and CEOs Merrill and Harold. Harold's pencil division was continuously shortchanged financially, pun intended. Um, even though the pencil company created the largest revenue for the company, while the toy division continuously floundered under this new leadership. In 1961, Hasbro that we know of today was born. In 1964, G.I. Joe was created when Hasbro was inspired to produce an action figure replica after the TV show, The Lieutenant. G.I. Joe had bendable and positionable joints and was so popular during the first two years on the market that it yielded 35 to $40 million or produced at least two thirds of the company's sales. In 1960, yeah. Right? Super fancy. Yeah, well, 60s, right? Think of the think of the culture. Think of what's going on at this time. Yeah, wildness. Right? In 1968, the company changed its name again to Hasbro Industries and went public, while major world events such as the Vietnam War continued to inspire the production team. As a result, in 1969, the team repackaged G.I. Joe to be less aggressive and more adventure-centered. In the same year, Hasbro acquired Burke Claster Enterprises, who created The Romper Room, a very popular show for preschoolers. Claster Enterprises also made toys to accompany the TV show. Using this Romper Room name, Hasbro decided to... Open a chain of nursery schools, because looking after the nation's youth is a great idea when you make toys. Uh, to try and take advantage of Nixon's family assistance plan, which subsidized daycare for working mothers. This was an incredibly huge mistake. And within five years, Hasbro had realized this. It only took you five years. <laughs> <sighs> Head office frequently received calls from daycare workers reporting missing children. Oh, no. How many calls do you think they got a day of saying, yo, I lost a kid. 
Like who? For five years? Are you kidding me? Like, yo, I don't like. Maybe they should like the FBI should look into this because I don't think it was some like serial kidnapper. It was Hasbro, yo. Hasbro every time. <laughs> Other Hasbro flops included the Galloping Gourmet Cookware, which literally disintegrated when termites infected the product in the supply house. Javelin darts were declared unsafe by the government, and Hyposquirt was labeled the official DIT training kit. DIT standing for Druggy in Training. Oh, my God. All products were swiftly removed from the market. In 1974, Merrill became the CEO of Hasbro, while his son, Stephen, became president. Unfortunately, the turbulent times were not over, as G.I. Joe was no, was no longer popular, and he was thus not profitable. He was discontinued in 1975 because of the rising price of plastic caused by unstable crude Crude oil prices. Oh, crude oil, the major problem of every world and major government. In 1977, Hasbro was in a heavy debt and a bad history of huge losses totaling approximately $2.5 million was following them. This poor performance contributed to Harold's resentment. Harold, the guy who runs the pencil company, which still received a smaller portion of funds than the toy division. When Merrill passed away in 1979 and Stephen, his son, inherited his father's position, Harold finally snapped. He refused to recognize Stephen's seniority. By 1980, the feud resolved itself when Empire Pencil, Harold's pencil division, became independent from Hasbro. By Harold exchanging his Hasbro shares for investment capital. Stephen himself, as the new um, president and CEO of Hasbro, was dedicated to turning the company around by adopting a more conservative production line. The new toys budget was cut by half. The production line, or sorry, the product line was reduced by two thirds. He wanted to focus on simpler toys that were guaranteed money makers. Stephen brought back G.I. Joe in 1982 in collaboration with Marvel Comics, this time repackaged as an anti-terrorist commando unit with an entourage of teammates. Two years later, the Transformers line tied to the popular children's television line premiered. In fact, the line was so popular that People magazine featured Steven and the Transformer toys on the cover. In the 1980s, Hasbro acquired many companies such as Glencoe Infant Items, Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy Dolls, Knickerbocker Toy Company, Milton Bradley, who's the maker of the Game of Life. By the mid-80s, Hasbro was the largest toy company in the world. Bigger than Mattel. (gasps) It attempted to compete with Barbie, with Gem, and Maxi dolls, but none could best the Bond beauty. Unfortunately, Stephen died young at 47 of a heart attack in 1989, leaving a tremendous legacy behind, and Alan became the CEO and chairman of Hasbro. 
Allen continued Steven's acquisition trend in the 1990s with Tonka and the Parker Brothers, Kenner Products, who made Batman action figures, and the Strawberry Shortcake product line. Allen also continued in Steven's international diversification by developing markets in Greece, Hungary, and Mexico. (laughs) Allen had formerly created large profits in overseas markets. This is kind of shady. By selling toys that failed in the U.S. to international markets at four times the original price. What? (laughs) Allen continued to diversify, except this time in Asia. By acquiring Japanese company Nomura Toys Limited, plus a large stake in Palmera, a southeastern Asian toy distributor. By 1995, more than 46% of the company's revenue came from overseas operations. While things were looking up overseas, things at home weren't looking so hot. Popular toys were products from movie or television entertainment tie-ins, such as Jurassic Park. And Barney, I personally helped created this influx in revenue because Barney was my jam. Jurassic Park was my jam. (laughs) According to an oral interview uh, conducted with my mother, Caroline, on August 22nd, 2020, Barney was responsible for my Pavlovian cleaning style. To encourage a clean bedroom, my mother frequently sang the clean up song, which triggered the desired response. Unfortunately, Barney was not able to compose a do not throw all your shit in the closet song. So this problem persisted until approximately 10 years of age. Anyways, moving on. To improve sales at home, Allen reorganized the company in 1994, merging Hasbro Toy, Play School, Kenner, and Kid Dimensions under a Hasbro, Hasbro Toy Group umbrella. The 90s marked another turbulent period for Hasbro and a surge in the competition between Hasbro and Mattel. Mattel's acquisition of Fisher-Price and Hasbro's difficulty entering the budding electronic games industry just, you know, really marked the period. Hasbro succeeded in 1995 with the establishment of Hasbro Interactive and the release of Monopoly on CD-ROM which was actually the first, like, CD-ROM game, uh, with Risk, Battleship, and PlaySchool games following shortly after. In 1995, the two kingdoms and Hasbro of Hasbro and Mattel met for parlay to discuss a possible merger. After Hasbro denied a $5.2 billion deal, they adopted strategies to guide them into a more stable new century of toy making. Hasbro boosted advertisements for electronic games, continued international market diversification, and new products or entertainment media collaborations such as Jurassic Park 2, Batman and Robin, Barney, and finally, Star Wars. Amazing. Okay, so we're going to take a jingle break, and we're going to tell the other side of the story because I think Mattel has something to say. Okay. 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 Mm, we'll see. We'll see, girl. <laughs> we'll see. The fight's beginning. Okay. 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 So, I'm going to talk about Mattel. She's Hasbro. I'm Mattel. So, Mattel has a number of different products. 
in their portfolio. And I'm going to just list off the big list that they have on their website. So this is a quote. Their portfolio includes Mattel girls and boys brands, including Barbie, fashion dolls and accessories, Polly Pocket, Little Mommy, Disney Classics, and Monster High, Pod Wheels, Matchbox, and Tyco RC vehicles and play sets. And cars, that's all caps. Radica, Toy Story, Max Steel, WWE Wrestling, and Batman, Games and Puzzles. Fisher Price brands, including Fisher Price, Little People, Baby Gear, and Imagine, Imagine Next, Dora the Explorer, Go Diego Go, Thomas and Friends, Mickey Mouse, Clubhouse, Disney's Jake, and the Neverland Pirates, CNC, and Power Wheels. American Girl brands, including My American Girl, The Historical Collection, and Baby Baby. Jesus. Okay, so that's a lot. <laughs> Just an FYI, Cars is now Jen's obsession. <laughs> you know, for that, for those that were wondering or concerned about her intellectual maturity and her emotional capacity. But just, you know, it's her obsession. <laughs> uh, moving on. So Harold Madsen and Elliot Handler started the company in 1945. And at first they sold picture frames. And then they moved on to dollhouse furniture, which is so cute. I want to make dollhouse furniture in my spare time. So, you can find a lot of, like, dollhouse furniture, like, sold as individual items in antique shops. And it's amazing. Uh, there's a guy on the wire, like one of the characters on the wire makes like miniature little furniture like in his spare time. Oh um, my god, I follow a bunch of Instagram people that do a bunch of that stuff too. Like it's like a good reason to watch the show. The show's good like on its own, but like... Yeah, it's like, <laughs> add that to the long list of reasons to watch The Wire, right? It's pretty sick. Uh, <laughs> anyways, so Matson eventually sold his part of the company to Elliot, Matt L., Let's see, see what's happening here. Uh, so he was in ill health. He sold it to his partner, uh, and Elliot's wife took up the responsibility of the remaining direction of the company. And in 1947, they had their first toy that was a real hit, which was the musical instrument. Uh, it's a ukulele, and it was called the Ukadoodle. Sounds amazing. I want five of them. Um, so after this, they went on to sponsor the Mickey Mouse Club which I'm sure you've all heard of, Britney Spears, Ryan Gosling, everybody. Uh, it was a television series, and it started off in the mid-50s. At the end of the 50s, in 59, the Barbie doll was introduced. And as you may already know, the Barbie doll, if she may not be proportionally accurate or able to walk if she were a real person, she's the highest-selling toy of all time, ever, in life. Yeah, for people- those of you that are, like, up-to-date on social media trends, there's like this new trendy pose that girls are doing. They're calling it Barbie feet, where they yes. where they stand on their bare t- on their like tippy toes, barefoot and photos, so that it elongates their legs. And they talk about it in talk. It's a Barbie perfection, like you know, silhouette. Yeah. So Barbie has warped our minds as females, but uh, yeah, they talk about that in like. Uh, in top model i watch a lot of america's midnight next top model because i have a, a desire to see people that are stupider than me uh, <laughs> or like at least assumed stupider than me maybe not mm. um anyway so we have the you could do we have the barbie uh and a lot of people collect barbie dolls as you oh make. a lot of people do my yeah. oh does they make fun of this in the simpsons with malibu stacy and smithers collection of them all of that, but there is the largest collection of Barbie dolls in Montreal. So, Le Cours Montreal, 
in the downtown of the Canadian city has the Barbie Expo, and it exhibits over a thousand Barbies. So these include celebrity likeness Barbies, unique Barbies, and Barbies with special outfits designed by world-renowned fashion designers. So and, uh, another great thing about this exhibit is that admission is free. So anyone in Montreal, even in Canada, just go, check it out. Check that mother out. Um, so in the next year came Chatty Cathy. Uh, the toy that was a talking doll, uh, and it's something that <laughs> the title is something that I use to refer to myself all the time. So once Mattel was into the 1960s, they started to acquisition a multitude of other companies. They have a whole table of other companies that they bought uh, on their history section on their website. In the 1980s, they got into the video game market. So we came full circle back to video games as as was tradition. Um, so earlier when I was talking about Nintendo, I talked about the video game crash of 1983, which sounds like, I don't know, for some reason it, it like really entertains me that there was like a video game crash. <laughs> uh, Mattel suffered greatly and I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's totally funny to me. Um, so they lost about $394 million and almost had to file for bankruptcy. Holy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of money losing. Uh, So John W. Ammerman, the chairman at the time, he really worked hard on improving the financial standing of the company. And in 1987, things were looking up. He had started working more closely with Disney again uh, in in the year after, in 1988, the year after. That Disney powerhouse just comes (laughs) and bails out everyone, right? Oh, yeah, you're going to owe me a favor now? I'm just, just, you know, you never know when I'm going to come, but I'm going to come knocking. (laughs) Hit me. Um, So he was really focused on key brands that the public would really buy into. So he clearly like, you know, those people on like reality shows when they're like, well, you get to talk about your brand. He's that guy. So in 1993, 1997, and 1998, Mattel purchased... um, Fisher Price Inc., Tyco Toys, and the Pleasant Company, respectively. And they make, uh, Pleasant Company makes the American Girl brand. If y'all know about American Girl, y'all know that that is like some successful stuff. You've heard some of the names also, like Fisher Price, Tyco Toys, whatever. So, also, you know, those they, who are like office, you can't even call fans in air quotes of the office fans because they're not fans we're all officially obsessed with it and we all binge watch it every time like over and over so for those of you that are familiar with it and maybe having a momentary brain fart american girl is the official outfitter for angela yeah yeah sometimes she has to get clothes for small colonial dolls what are you gonna do um I'm a, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a member of the Office Addicts group on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure the person that Netflix contacted because they had been watching The Office for like five days straight or something is in the same group as me. <laughs> it's like amazing. Shocker. Um, it's great. So anyways, this guy made some good choices. He knew what he was doing. In 1999, they tried again to get into the computer game market and trying to like get in there and jam and they lost $430.9 million this time. It just really wasn't meant to be. Um, Hasbro really like, I guess had that. Hemorrhaging money. <laughs> Amazingly, they 
sued the band Aqua, which I love to work out to, love Aqua. I also made a cheer for uh, a camp cheer to the song Dr. Jones back in the day. Anyways, they sued them for the infamous song Barbie Girl. Uh, this lawsuit. Rude. Yeah, they said, you know, like that it was depicting uh, Barbie as a bimbo and they didn't like it and like it was a sexualized nature. Uh, and this was rejected in 2002. So in the same year that they closed their they closed their last factory in the USA, that's 2002, and they moved to China for their production. So following this move, there was a scandal involving lead poisoning attached to some of their products. In 2007, they had to recall 18 million products. So that's a that's a lot of product. Holy moly! But they were commended for their response to the scandal. You always see how people <laughs> respond to the scandal. It's always terrible. Like blah blah blah. These guys did a good job. So they did extensive efforts following the first recall to uh, recall additional items, inform the public, uh, and even Fortune magazine gave them props. Well, so, when you're such a big company that owns so many products yeah so many brand lines and you're a major manufacturer of toys for toddlers and preschoolers who happen to put everything in their mouth yeah let's not kill 18 million children if not more yeah but good like, job on you mattel did you get into the daycare business at all no they did not <laughs> they say steered clear it was a good idea on their part but cool, yeah cool so they they definitely like had good policy really like went into action and um good job mattel in 2010 things were looking up because uh hit entertainment licensed mattel to use thomas and friends and i've worked with children for a long time um and they all love thomas my cousin jay would fuse the word thomas the word with the word mama to make mamas that's how much he loved thomas <laughs> he loved him so much um Oh my god, he's gonna kill me if he finds out that I told them that. <laughs> I told everyone in the world that. Um, but anyways, Mamas. I love it. Mamas. Um, so they have since been named one of the top 100 companies to work for, and they are launching. Uh, and they started launching television shows. So those related to Hot Wheels. Oh, Hot they Wheels are, are my jam. Yeah, they're sick. So they have success. Had success with uh, Thomas movie. Um, some He-Man-based movies, Monster High, and She-Ra movies. They hired former Disney Channel Worldwide Programming executive Adam Bonnet as the executive producer and head of Reorganized Mattel Television in early February 2019. 2019. So, and then in mid-February on the 15th, Mattel TV announced a slate of 22 animated and live-action television programs. The division works with the franchise management division's senior vice president of content distribution and business development, Frederick Sully. Um, and that's all we're going to be talking about today because we would get into Lego, but I think we've talked long enough today and we need we need time. We need Lego needs marination time, you know? We need to get into it. It, it really does. There, there needs to be, there needs to be a little like, you know, there needs to be some time for this to sink in first, just so we can really appreciate Lego for the innovative product that it is, just like for the learning that it provides. Um, you know, the mandate 
that the company has. Um, and also their like their ecological um, initiatives and environmental initiatives that they're putting into practice to try and help benefit, you know, lower income communities, kids that don't have access to things and also the world at the same time, which, you know, is crumbling all around us because of COVID. So <laughs> a little thing here and there, you know, may help. Exactly. So that is all the time that we have for today, but keep on the lookout. We're going to have that first bonus episode. We're, we're really excited about it. So get pumped. Re- reflect on your own Lego experience. And remember when sometimes when life gives you bonus lemons, just like us, uh, you just got to enjoy them. Boopie, boopie.